Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books and World Affairs podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Gordon, and today I'm talking to Thea Rio Francos. She's the author of Resource Radicals from Petro Nationalism to Post Extractivism in Ecuador from Duke University Press, just out uh, in August 2020. Um, this is a book about. Um, uh, conflict over uh, mineral extraction, um, mining, and, and um, uh, oil development, oil drilling in Ecuador. But it's also about the deeper questions for democratic theory and social movement strategy that uh, are going to be raised by efforts to um, tackle the climate crisis and uh, shift the world economy onto a more uh, resource sustainable trajectory. Um, Thea, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, so you say in the acknowledgments that in hindsight, the research for this book began when you and your partner decided to move to Ecuador in 2007. How did you become interested in Ecuador and in the politics of natural resources? Um, thanks for opening with this question, because I, I do think it's really interesting for social scientists to discuss like how they came to the sites and cases that they studied, um, uh, it, sort of in ways that are imbricated with our own kind of personal lives and biographies and trajectories. So in, in this case, I um, had some experience prior to uh, beginning the dissertation that began, that, that was the basis for the book, I had experience in, substantial experience in Latin America, both doing solidarity activism, um, traveling. Uh, my father is, is Argentinian. So I had this sort of background in Latin America and in a few different countries. Um, and my, my then boyfriend, now, now husband, um, also had substantial mm-hmm. experience doing Latin America solidarity work. And it's something that we connected about. And so we, we kind of wanted to move after I graduated from college. We, um, in the years after after that, we decided, you know, we we wanted to move to South America. It was this very exciting moment that I recount, you know, obviously in more depth in the book around like a bunch of left wing governments coming to power, a lot of social movement mobilization, just a feeling of sort of vibrancy, especially you know on the left, particularly in in, in Latin American politics. And so we said we got to move there and just see this with with our with our own eyes. We had both, as I said, visited and spent time in Latin America, but we hadn't like lived there for extended periods. Um, and we chose Ecuador, you know, it was a bit of reasoned, you know, motivation and a bit arbitrariness and spontaneity. Um, it was a place neither of us had ever been before, but where a left-wing government had just come to power, Rafael Correa. And that left-wing government, as we'll discuss in the interview, was the product of, of we could say decades, but also especially more approximately years of, of really intense social mobilization in the streets in Ecuador. Ecuador has uh, at the time had and and we might say still has one of the the hemisphere's most organized indigenous uh, federations that that covers um, indigenous nationalities and peoples from the entire country. So it was just a really interesting place politically um, and socially and then also ecologically and climactically and geologically, it's a fascinating place. It's about the size of, of Colorado, but covers, um, has coastline, has um, Andean, you know, high Andean mountain peaks, has um, uh, Amazon rainforest, and also has all sorts of in-between ecosystems like cloud forests and semi-tropical zones. And it's just a, 
an amazing natural abundance and beautiful ecosystems, but in a small territory. So it's actually quite easy to travel and, and, and experience all of these different places. So, you know, we chose Ecuador for all those reasons. And we arrived in the midst of what turned out not only to be, you know, the first like year or two of, of, of this leftist government, but also a new phase of state society conflict, which, which again, we'll get into more in the interview. And so it was even more complex and interesting than I thought. It wasn't, you know, what I thought sort of before arriving in Ecuador was social movements got, got their government in power, and now there's going to be this happy sort of synergy between movements and the state. And there was some of that, uh, especially at the beginning, but it turned out to be more fraught as movements began to be critical of, of certain policies in, in implemented by the Correa administration and also by Korea's own rhetoric and attitude towards movements. And so it it was sort of this open conflict between the left in power and the left in resistance that really complicated my own notions of, of what the left is, of, of you know, whether we focus more on movements or the state. And also then from, an, from a personal perspective, complicated my understanding of what solidarity is. Like, are we in solidarity with the movements that are resisting the government or the government that might be critical of the U.S. in ways I agree with? And so it's a whole kind of mix of things that I found fascinating and then went back to do my dissertation research subsequently after um, after getting admitted into graduate school and then returned many times for follow-up visits and, and for the book research. Yeah, so um, uh, shifting to uh, your graduate school experience, um, this is a book that uh, is a political ethnography, and um, that's uh, not exactly a mainstream methodology in comparative politics. Uh, I know I have been kind of frustrated by how the field is becoming so quantitative and so causal inference oriented um, that uh, these interpretive methods and, and also historical methods are, are becoming um, more difficult to get published and more difficult to get jobs. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, did you have challenges gaining support for this project as a graduate student? I had the very good fortune of sort of coming up in a department in the, in the University of Pennsylvania that especially at the time that, that I was a graduate student, which was between 2008 and 2014. Well, first, I'll just say I had the good fortune of starting graduate school in 2008 during a terrible financial crisis, right? That was not, that was not planned on my part, but it ended up being useful. Anyhow, um, so I, I had the good fortune additionally of being in a department that had both a really um, uh, um, sort of substantive political theory um, uh, subfield, meaning it wasn't like a marginalized part of the department, right? It was like really a part of the, the department culture. And then on the other hand, in the comparative politics, having a lot of comparative um, political scientists that did um, theoretically informed historical institutionalist approaches, right? And so that combination, and those were my two subfields, political theory and comparative politics, like was very generative for me. And there were actually several students that did combined theory and comparative or combined theory and American um, with a sort of APD orientation in, in American, American political development orientation, right, under Roger Smith and Adolf Reed and, and others with, and, and Murray Gottschalk. I mean, we have several sort of in that, in that, um, uh, with that approach to American politics. So it was really helpful to have the support of my peers that took, you know, similar, you know, multi subfield approaches and theoretically informed qualitative work. Um, and among my professors, there, there weren't, um, at the time, at least, um, professors in, in comparative politics that did ethnographic work properly, though, actually, my advisor, Julia Folletti, ended up doing much more extensive field work as her scholarship evolved, right, for, for her own projects, right. But, but, it, but, it, but I was sort of the thing that was, I think, more challenging for me, 
wasn't so much doing qualitative work or doing theoretically informed work. It was, and that was non-quantitative and not formal modeling. It was more um, having guidance around ethnography itself as your question kind of posed. And for that, I had to kind of go a bit outside of my program and my, the, the, an external committee member, Erica Simmons, whose work is amazing, um, really helped and who had extensive ethnographic experience for her own book, um, really helped guide me through that. Um, but let me kind of answer your question more generally, because those particularities might not be like super useful to your average grad student. I want to say in general that I did face pushback, not per se from those that supported me most closely, but just in general, like in the department or in the discipline or at conferences and workshops. And I've experienced this to this day, though at this point, I'm more confident and it doesn't bother me as much. But but earlier in my grad school and even sort of more junior um, sort of professor phase, I got pushback on a couple of things. One is ethnography. Is it rigorous? The second is discourse. Like, why are you studying ideas when you're talking about political economy, right? Because like, my book, in a sense, I consider it uh, in in this in the vein of political economy, and I want to sort of claim political economy as something that we can do ethnographically, do with heterodox approaches, and, and actually center non-state sort of social movement actors in our study of the dynamics of political economy. Right. So this kind of thing of like, why do you study ideas and discourse and language when you should be studying like what really is happening with political economy? Right. So I got that pushback. And then the third pushback I got was on case, so-called case selection. It's like, why do you only have one case? And also why Ecuador? It's like not geopolitically important. It, it's not a big economy. You know, why don't you add a case? Or why don't you do instead Brazil or, you know, whatever it is? And so I got those three types of pushback. Um, right. And because it, it's so easy to just like, you know, learn Portuguese and travel to an entirely different country and learn their right, right. <laughs> contacts I mean, and all that. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, underlying this is either a misunderstanding of how field work works or an assumption that you can study places quite superficially and yet still somehow, you know, produce a very rigorous study of them, right? The idea is that it's more rigorous to have like superficial but multiple cases than it is to have an in-depth set of sites in the same case. Um, and and so, you know, I disagree with that reasoning. And I think your sort of like humorous question like shows what, what problems with it are. But, you know, I, 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 I won't go through how I dealt with each of these, but I will just say, you know, I do think that there is a misunderstanding among some of our quantitative and formal modeling and even our like multi-case kind of qualitative researchers about ethnography. And the misunderstanding is um, hinges on the idea that ethnography is as so-called ideographic, it's purely descriptive, and that actually the granularity and the embeddedness are obstacles to generalization and rigor. And I, you know, my experience has been almost the opposite in the sense that like in-depth ethnographic work, which I did for my book that we're talking about now, and I've done four months of for my new project, um, um, and I've done you know, field work there in Chile and, and, and Brussels. And so you know, I have pretty substantial field work experience. And my experience has been that field, embedded field work, um, uh, site-specific and participatory observation, as well as archival and, and other methods, um, is, is extremely rigorous because you are constantly being tested by your interlocutors, by your interview subjects, by the way the events unfold, or if it's historical, by unexpected discoveries in the archive. And it's in fact the experience of like, 
an overwhelming quantity of data, a huge richness of data, and um, constant opportunities to, if we want to use a positivist language, to test hypotheses, have them be refuted or verified, sort of recalibrate your hypotheses and go back with better theories and sort of have a kind of dynamic between theory and evidence that is um, is is I find to be scientific, rigorous, and and also like extremely fruitful for innovative concepts and paradigms. No, I totally agree. And um, uh, going back to your point about how uh, you can do uh, ethnographic studies of political economy and anthropology and geography right now, there is uh, so there are so many scholars doing great ethnographic work on. Um, the political economy of infrastructure and logistics and uh, uh, oil drilling, like Hannah Oppel's work on on oil in, in Equatorial Guinea. Uh, there's just so much fantastic work on that because um, uh, the people who would ask you, why do you study ideas or discourse around political economy? That says a lot about their taken for granted assumptions about the object that they're studying, right? Um uh, you study discourse when it comes to uh, political economy precisely to try to get beyond the surface level um, um, appearances of of the objects that we take for granted. Right, exactly. And I think that, you know, as I argue in the book, that that's especially, it's especially useful to look at what actors on the ground are saying and and what meanings they attach to those words and then how those, those um, ideas and concepts sort of travel across social space and form new understandings. It's especially under, important to do that. I mean, in general, my view of social life is that language is just how we mediate social relations. So it's, it's, we have to pay attention to it if we're social scientists. Um, but, but I would say, you know, a, a more narrow argument um, that I make to folks that are more skeptical of, of language as, as important as an object of study is to say that like when actors on the ground are designing new um, policy frameworks, are designing new um, uh, economic models, or are contesting or arguing or deliberating over those economic models, it's extremely important to attend to what they're saying, because literally what they are saying is going to end up being the policy framework that forms the the parameter and the sort of terrain of dispute um, between corporations and the state and non-state actors and social movements, right? And so, you know, it's hard to say that, like, it's unimportant to attend to language when there's active and discursively mediated debates over, for example, mining policy that then make their way into laws or constitutions or regulations that then codify those discursive um, interactions into something that 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 endures beyond the moment of of the observed interaction, right? And I think that um, a lot of the skepticism of ideas in political economy comes from for rational choice people comes from models of political communication that uh, emphasize that it's not strategically smart to to show your hand or to communicate what you really believe. So called cheap talk models. Um, and I think that they dismiss a lot of uh, discourse as uh, empty signaling or or uh, cheap talk as ways to convince people of things that they don't that the actors themselves don't really believe. But to me, uh, the answer, although that's certainly something we can observe in day to day life, um, the answer is not to dismiss discourse and ideas out of hand. It's to dive deeper in and to to have thicker descriptions and, and a deeper understanding of um, what actors are saying to different audiences and trying to um, 
understand what they believe from from these uh, different communications. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And this idea that it, discourse or rhetoric is purely instrumental being a reason to discount it actually is totally unsatisfying because I agree that oftentimes discourse is strategic, let's say. And I actually don't care very much, as I say in the book, whether actors believe what they are saying or without even mean. We'd have to get into their interiority and that's not accessible to me em- empirically. But that doesn't mean that that words and ideas don't have pragmatic effects, um, including ones that are instrumentally intended, but oftentimes the most interesting effects are ones that are unintended consequences of, of the ways that discourses might institutionalize and become sort of hegemonic ways of seeing the world, having all, all sorts of consequences that the architects or authors of that discourse did not intend or foresee. Right. Discourses have causal effects when they take on a life of their own. Uh, that's kind of where discourse theory and something like historical institutionalism comes into contact because the that's often the the style of argument that historical institutionalists also make about how rules can take on a life of their own and, exactly. and, and transcend their ins- short-term instrumental calculations that may have led to them being right. implemented. Agreed. Um, okay, so turning now to the subject matter of the book, I would like to give listeners a little bit of background about uh, Ecuador's uh, geography, which you've talked a little bit about the different uh, uh, the biodiversity and in, in the different regions that uh, Ecuador has, and also Ecuador's history, since they're so central to the political conflicts that you examine. Um, first of all, uh, natural resource exports, especially fossil fuels and minerals, constitute a major portion of Ecuador's economy. What resources does Ecuador export, and when did oil production and mining become major activities in Ecuador's economy? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, like most of its neighbors um, in in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, Ecuador has had a model of accumulation that is based on the extraction or harvesting of primary materials and their export. Um, for further process, processing, refining, industrialization, or whatever happens to the materials once they leave their borders. And that model of accumulation, there's different ways to periodize it, um, but I think that it's good to take a long durée view of, of history. And so, um, you know, I would date I would date that model of accumulation to the moment of of Spanish and Portuguese conquest. Of course, that depends on the country we're in, um, but but Spanish or Portuguese conquest, um, and then the the subsequently violent sort of insertion into the world system uh, under the auspices of providing raw materials for the then Spanish and Portuguese empires, as well as other empires um, that they were in competition with, right? And so after independence, which happens at varying moments across the Americas, but the most of South American independence happens in the early 19th century. So a couple hundred years after um, that, that, or a few hundred years after that initial um, violent incorporation, which happens in the 16th century. Um, So in the early 19th century, you have these independences, but these independence movements, while kind of, uh, you know, amazingly successful at at, at defeating an empire, um, in in this case, the Spanish empire, um, were not so successful in terms of changing the basic position in the global economy, right? And they weren't even really per se, trying to do that. Um, Those subsequently state actors in various South American governments did attempt over the long 20th century to change that, to change that dynamic, to change the model of accumulation 
uh, and to sort of climb up the ladder um, of the world system because we know, and this is whether you're a mainstream economist or like a heterodox dependency theory economist, like basically being an exporter of raw materials and that's it is not great for your economy um, uh, for various reasons, which I think we'll touch on a little later in the interview. But um, but you know, different different governments in Latin America had some degree of success in changing that economic portfolio, but Ecuador was not really one of them. Um, so in Ecuador, um, there was a primarily kind of agricultural export economy for the maybe, you know, let's say the first kind of half of the 20th century. I'm moving us a little closer to the present now. Um, but then in, in the 19, in the early 1970s, Ecuador's oil economy was inaugurated with some, uh, big oil discoveries, discovery of some major, uh, and quite productive oil fields. And then, um, especially with the rise to power of a, uh, kind of left nationalist military government in the early 1970s that saw oil as a sort of way to bring development to Ecuador and also played a very pivotal role, just by the way, in, in the early um, stages of the formation of OPEC and in the early kind of paradigm that governed OPEC, which was a more kind of anti-colonial and kind of global south or third worldist kind of developmentalist um, uh, phase of OPEC than it currently has, right? OPEC's gone under many changes. But anyway, Ecuador and Venezuela had a big role in the 70s in, 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 um, in this idea of kind of oil-led developmentalism. And so at that moment, oil gets solidified as the basis um, um, of especially of, of the Ecuadorian state, right, in terms of where its revenues come from. Uh, at varying points in history, it changes, but kind of since the 70s, um, more or less oil has formed kind of like a third of, of the state budget. That depends, you know, on it, it varies, but, but, but it's a big, it's the biggest single contributor to state finances, um, more than taxes and more than, than royalties and taxes on other, on other exported goods. Um, in addition to oil, Ecuador also relies on other extractive sectors. So it has a big um, shrimp farming sector. It has a big cut flowers sector. Um, it has other agricultural sectors that are both for domestic use and for um, and for export. And then in the period that the book covers, which is roughly um, the period that the ethnographic portion of the book covers, which is um, roughly 2010 to 2017, there's this big attempt on the part of the Korea government to to, ha to like diversify, we might say in quotes, like the, the extractive portfolio of Ecuador to not just rely on oil, but to also um, uh, expand it to large scale mining. And Ecuador previously had had various frustrated attempts, frustrated from the point of view of the state and and corporations to to um, uh, to um, open up Ecuador to investment in large scale mining. Those had not really worked, and it also just hadn't been a big focus of the state because oil was just always there, and it was like a great you know consistent uh, uh, um, export and 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 um, source of, of state revenue. So there wasn't a real need to expand into mining, but. Under Correa, his his goal to really dramatically and, and he did like increase state spending meant more state revenues were needed and mining seemed like a perfect bet. Ecuador is surrounded by countries that have huge mining sectors, right? You know, especially we're thinking about Peru, Chile, um, uh, um, and, and elsewhere. Um, and so it's like, you know, and these are the same geologic formations that Ecuador has. So it's like, why not have open pit copper mines and gold mines, et cetera, in Ecuador as well? And so Korea kind of got to work on, um, on um, incentivizing investment in those sectors in order to expand the, the sort of export basket of, of Ecuador. But otherwise, you know, regardless of which specific sector we're talking about, Ecuador is at the time of my study, one of the two top most resource or natural resource dependent 
economies in Latin America. It's like neck and neck with Venezuela in terms of how much natural resources are important to um, how much they make up the export basket and also how important they are to uh, to state revenues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, it's uh, always kind of um, darkly comical to me to read in The Economist or the Financial Time, Times an article about Global South Country X, and they kind of blithely say in a paragraph near the end of the article, now the challenge is for Country X to diversify their economy so that they are less reliant on natural resource exports, as though this isn't like a decades long challenge that, you know, uh, different factions uh, uh, have disagreed with over how to do as though it's just kind of like, oh, let's just flip a switch and diversify our econ- our economy away from uh, from resource exports, um, uh, and Ecuador has has struggled with that as well. And and for being such a small country with a small internal market, it's even more difficult to uh, diversify. For example, into manufacturing uh, uh, for the domestic market in an ISI kind of way um, for a country like Ecuador than for a larger country like Brazil, for example. Um, so the country is divided geographically uh, between lowland coastal areas, the highlands, and the, the Amazon, and ethnically between mestizos and indigenous groups. Uh, how do these geographical and ethnic divisions map onto conflicts over natural resources? Yeah, so so similar to some of its Andean neighbors that have a similar kind of mix of, of different uh, geographic, climactic, ecosystem kind of zones of, of the country, um, Ecuador, um, partly as a result of, of those big um, differences in geography that you just mentioned, right? So there's lowland coastal region, there's highland Andes, um, Andean mountains, and then there's another lowland region to the east, which is which is Amazon Amazonian rainforest. As partly as a result of those um, different geographies. And partly as a result of, you know, the lack of a sort of hegemonic political class at sort of key moments in Ecuador's history, Ecuador has suffered from a sort of internal fragmentation, right? Um, A territorial fragmentation that has culture and politics and economics layered atop of it. Um, And this is a longstanding issue in in Ecuador, as it is in in Bolivia and Peru and and other countries with um, similar histories in in the region. Um, But what's interesting is the sort of latter part of your question, which is how does this map on to resource-related conflicts? And um, uh, what I would say is that, you know, one of the big um, things that I learned in writing this book is is how deeply territorialized, how territorially specific um, resource conflicts and resource politics are. And and it seems maybe an obvious statement, but I think experiencing that ethnographically and then historically through the archive was enlightening because what what we have is that at different junctures in history, different conflicts involving different actors over different resource sectors are particularly live or contentious. Um, and those can shape actually national politics as well over extraction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, w- w- a couple of different uh, things to point out. You know, in the, in the earlier 20th century, we have a lot of... Co- struggles between uh, peasants, campesinos in, in Spanish, between peasants and, and large landowners in the agricultural sector, right? And so that's in, in um, the Andes, but then there's also labor conflicts in the agricultural sector in the coast, right? So we're thinking of like things like banana plantations, right? So those have real impacts on national politics, but also, as I recount in the book, in the Andes, those conflicts between peasants and landowners bequeath kind of organizational forms um, where peasants 
citizens become quite organized in ways that have real ramifications for the origins of the indigenous movement, right? Earlier in that history, earlier in the 20th century, indigenous wasn't the identity label, though there were interesting ways that people situated themselves in both class and ethnic terms. But peasant was a sort of more overriding label in terms of how subaltern peoples um, in the Andes identified. And their, their conflicts were primarily, though not exclusively, over land ownership and labor relations on the big haciendas, on the big farms, right? Um, and those kind of became, those are the sort of origin, more historical origins of the regional um, indigenous federation in the Andes that then became one of the key drivers of the national indigenous federation that was formed um, in the 1980s. Um, so that's one trajectory. Then parallel to that trajectory, but a little bit later in history or a little bit more recently in, in history, um, is what happened in the Amazon. So in the Amazon, you have longstanding, um, uh, uh, relatively sort of self-governing indigenous communities um, of a variety of ethnicities and a variety of languages. Um, uh, colonization of the Amazon happened later than uh, in the Andes because of just the literal, the literal difficulty of a sort of rainforest environment in terms of in terms of co- the penetration of, of colonialism and colonization. And it actually happened less under the um, ambit of Spanish um, imperial rule and more under the ambit of the Ecuadorian state. So in the in the 20th century, the Ecuadorian state at various junctures encouraged mestizo and indigenous settlement from the highlands to the to the Amazonian lowlands. So they encouraged people of various ethnic backgrounds that that were maybe small farmers, let's say, in the highlands to um, actually go to the Amazon and kind of homestead. And it's a not dissimilar dynamic from like the frontier in the US. It was a way, it was like a safety valve for class conflict, right? And it was all for class conflict in the Andes that I've already described. And it was also a way for the Ecuadorian state to sort of build the infrastructure of, of state making in the Amazon was to just actually have people settle it. And so they basically gave land away for free. And simultaneous, they, um, to that, they encouraged um, extractive industries, right? So logging, agriculture, and then eventually oil in the 1970s, as I already mentioned. So there's this increasing penetration of the Amazon um, of mostly mestizos, but also indigenous folks from the highlands coming in, and then also companies, national and foreign, coming in to exploit natural resources. And as one can imagine, this generates conflicts with um with Amazonian communities that are highly internally organized, have a sense of territorial autonomy and independence, self-govern for, you know, thousands of years. And so, you know, there's these conflicts that come about both on a kind of more horizontal conflicts, we might say, meaning between like poor mestizos that come to homestead and, and poor like Amazonian folks. So like conflicts between people of not super different class positions, we might say, but also conflicts that are much more asymmetric with big mining companies or, or, or I should say oil companies and logging companies to be more specific at that time period um, that are coming in and, and, and Amazonian peoples um, and nationalities are doing like really intense battle with, with oil companies in ways that actually truncates the development of oil. Like there's still major oil development, but oil companies don't end up going everywhere they want to because of the fact that indigenous communities use increasingly militant tactics, especially in the 90s and 2000s, to actually st- to, to stall um, the, the spread of the extractive frontier. Um, uh, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned how land colonization was a strategy for the state to uh, reduce cl- class conflict in, uh, 
um, in the Andes. Uh, that's uh, a way that uh, coloniality persists into the post-colonial period. Uh, a formal independence, how uh, uh, states themselves use similar tactics to what uh, uh, colonizers might have used uh, to uh, resolve some similar political tensions that arise because of uh, the extractive nature of the economy, the high levels of landowning inequality that persist in the uh, formal um, period of formal independence. Um, So the backlash against the neoliberal reforms of the 80s and 90s is the backdrop for the conflicts over what to do with the country's resources that you focus on. What were some of the most important and most controversial, controversial features of neoliberalism in Ecuador? What's interesting about neoliberalism in Ecuador um, is that it isn't a case like Bolivia, for example, um, or like Chile under Pinochet, or like Argentina under their 1970s dictatorship of like a neoliberal, a total neoliberal shock doctrine type of thing. That's Naomi Mm -hmm. Klein's language, but you know, sort of this idea of like, just across the board structural changes to the economy to dramatically deregulate, to dramatically privatize, to impose brutal austerity and to like really repress the labor movement and popular sector response to those, right? Um, so so Ecuador, you have attempts to do all those things to and, and, and they succeed to varying degrees from the perspective of neoliberal reformers. But what's fascinating about Ecuador is precisely because of both social resistance to neoliberalism, which starts right away with the first attempts in the 80s, you have a pretty weak, but you know, still active labor federation coming out into the streets to strike and to protest. And then you have the indigenous movement getting involved and other popular sectors getting involved. So from the very beginning of neoliberal reforms, it doesn't really catch the popular sectors off guard. They're like immediately ready for it. And part of that is that neoliberal reforms had started a bit earlier in some neighboring countries. And so there was awareness of what was happening Um, uh, around the region and the world. Um, But you also have, in a way related to that internal fragmentation of the state that I mentioned earlier because of that territorially kind of uneven model of accumulation, that 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 ha- is, has real differences in the coastal and the Andes and the and the Amazon. Um, in part because of that, you have like a perennially divided elite in 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 Ecuador. You have a real kind of competition between the coastal agro exporters and the highland um, um, big agricultural sector that produces a bit more for the internal market, and then with like the oil companies and whatever in the Amazon, right? So you have real competition between these elites, and this is a story that's familiar across Latin America, but it just particularly particularly pronounced in Ecuador, and I would also say in Bolivia, just for comparative kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have social resistance in the streets from day one of neoliberal reforms. And then you have elites that are like divided, like not all elites are totally on board with the neoliberal thing, or even if they are, they like are have petty squabbles with one another and run parallel political machines with different constituencies. So like, there's kind of like a mess of a political situation, which has the, I guess, benefit that Ecuador never full went down the route of a full structural reform of the economy. The privatizations happened, but they were more limited than the neoliberal ideologues wanted. The de- and ditto for every other aspect of neoliberal reforms. I think what was most um, pernicious um, and and catastrophic from the perspective of the popular sectors um, in terms of what neoliberal reforms did achieve 
was a few things. One was austerity, even though it wasn't maybe as much as the neoliberal ideologues wanted, it, it still happened. And, 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 and people in Ecuador, popular sector people really did suffer. And that's combined with the debt crisis that was kind of compounding all of this at the same time in Latin America. So you had real social suffering as a result of, of austerity and the debt crisis. Um, that's one set of things. A little later on in the late 90s, you had a financial crisis, which we won't get into the the details of because it's a little complicated. But I'll just suffice to say, and this will sound actually familiar to listeners in the US and, and elsewhere in the world, um, there was a taxpayer funded bailout of the big banks and financial institutions and um, in the late 90s. And that was very enraging to lower but also middle class Ecuadorians. So that actually politicized middle class Ecuadorians against neoliberalism because they saw that really they were just subsidizing financial institutions like the 1% and, and having their bank accounts drained in order to do so, right? Um, and and so then the economy in, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s was dollarized in order to just put a big stop against inflation. That worked, but it did take monetary tools out of the toolbox in terms of government um, responses to social needs. And so uh, you couldn't do the forms of inflationary social spending, let's say, that had been previously been uh, possible. And so Ecuador's on the dollar, um, which had its some benefits, but had these limitations, right? So that was another kind of neoliberal reform that um, that that um, that had some negative consequences, even though it, it helped with inflation. Um, and then in addition to that, and even and and very germane to the to my book, is the deregulation of extractive sectors. And this was across the board. It was in oil and it was in mining. Even though, as I said, there wasn't a real mining sector yet, the World Bank and other international financial institutions that had a role in sort of influencing Ecuador's policies were really keen to incentivize mining investment. This was a big trend across Latin America. It's in the mid-90s that Latin America emerges as a sort of mining powerhouse, exporting minerals throughout the world. Um, and so the World Bank was pushing this in Ecuador. And, and what that looked like was a deregulation of mining concessions or leases in, in, more, um, in less jargony terms. Um, and even though mining hadn't begun in earnest, you have a penetration of mining companies and the beginnings of conflicts over land and water um, that that would sort of set up um, more intense conflicts in the 2000s once the companies actually try to invest and, and start the projects in earnest. And similar things in the oil sector. You have deregulation, you have an infusion of new oil companies and oil capital, and you have those conflicts in the Amazon that I already referenced. So, so neoliberalism, um, you know, the main takeaway is that the austerity policies and the reduction in social spending and the way that ordinary people kind of bailed out the banks um, really radicalized people and, and allowed for interesting coalitions to emerge that included and were actually led by indigenous groups, namely the National Indigenous Federation, but also included popular sectors of labor, um, you know, peasants, all sorts of people, and began to even include more and more the middle class as people that were disaffected with neoliberalism. And then you have the eruption of more social conflict over attractive sectors as a result, as a result of deregulation um, and courting of foreign investment um, in those sectors. Um, so the election of Rafael Correa, a young heterodox economist in 2007, seemed to mark the country's definitive break with neoliberalism. He uh, managed to um, capture a lot of this energy of the anti-neoliberalism uh, backlash uh, in his campaign for the presidency. Um, tell us about who Correa was, uh, how he rose to prominence, and what his policy agenda was, and how does he compare to other pink tide leaders like 
Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Evo Morales in Bolivia, or the Kirchners in Argentina? Yeah, it's it's a great question because he has a pretty, I mean, all of these people have interesting trajectories, to be honest, but but he definitely has an interesting and, and sort of unexpected uh, one in a way. Um, he is a heterodox economist um, and was actually, uh, did his PhD in the US um, with a big focus on kind of industrial policy and economic development. But again, from a heterodox perspective, very influenced by, by Stiglitz, but also influenced by the histories of economic development in late emerging economies such as as, as South Korea and, and Brazil and, and and others, right? So he he had this heterodox approach to to economics in which the state plays a role in coordinating and guiding investment. It's not an anti-capitalist view, but it's one that's very critical critical of like laissez-faire or neoliberal capitalism, right? So the state has an important coordinating role. The public sector also has an important investment role directly, in addition to sort of using regulations and contracts to guide investment. Um, And um, he also is is critical and becomes more so with over time of like U.S., hegemony in the region, especially with the way that manifests economically, sort of like the U.S. pushing of these free trade agreements that really limit the ability for sovereign states um, in the global south to direct their own economies. Um, and this experience, this is his sort of academic background. Uh, he also had experience as, as a missionary um, in, in indigenous communities in Ecuador and learned some 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 Quechua, which is helps him later on politically. But he does not come from a movement background, so he's very different from Morales. In that in that sense, right? Um, Morales comes from the coca growers movement um, in Bolivia and has a long trajectory as a labor leader and really comes from like the grassroots. Where Rafael Correa is like a professor. Um, he had a short stint as a finance minister under the interim Palacios government in two thousand five, where he began to put into practice some of his heterodox ideas until he sort of ran up against like the limitations of that government and the IMF. And, and, and so he, he left. And, and so he had some government experience. He had experience as a researcher and professor, um, but he did not come from a social movement background um, at all. And unlike the Kirchners, he didn't come from like a sort of political, an, an established political machine, if that makes sense. Like the mm-hmm. Peronis is like a very well institutionalized party that is a little hard to place politically because they have left and right factions internally. But the Kirchners came from a very institutionalized left faction of a very institutionalized political party, right? And so what Correa is different is that he's much more, he's maybe oddly enough closer to Chavez, though again, they're different because Chavez Mm -hmm. comes from the military and has this sort of military left nationalist ideological background. He becomes a socialist or at least explicit and and explicitly becomes one um, while he's in government being pushed by movements to radicalize. Um, But sort of the similarity between um, um, Chavez and Correa is that they're really anti-system types. They don't come from like an, est- a, an established party. Um, Correa has to kind of create a electoral vehicle. Um, and I use that language because it's kind of, sh- it's not quite a political party. And, and the electoral system in Ecuador is pretty permissive of like political movements that aren't parties um, competing in elections. Um, so he creates this electoral vehicle with other left-wing um, politicians and intellectuals in Ecuador. Um, he kind of um, manages to dominate um, in the 2006 elections, partly because of the fragmentation of the electoral system in, that I've already mentioned a few 
few times now, and political elites in Ecuador kind of allowing him to to gain the most votes because other elites and conservatives are kind of divided against one another. Um, so that's 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 Correa's um, background, and and as I say in the book, and you reference in your in your question, he comes to power um, not so much as a social movement figure, but more as someone who has serious credentials as a left-wing economist and can clearly make the case that he's consistently a critic of neoliberalism and he's going to do something different and also makes a case, and this relates maybe to his missionary experience, like in a more Catholic register, that he is compassionate um, and that he cares about people's struggles and that he's going to address them um, using state policy. Um, it's interesting that you talk about how uh, he's somebody who comes from an academic background, uh, not really involved in party politics, doesn't have connections in the military, doesn't have connections to social movements. Um, in a way, he uh, and he and he comes to power in the context of a very fragmented um, party system. Uh, in a way, he is almost like uh, the opposite Fujimori, uh, uh, the president of Peru, who came to power in a kind of he was a university president uh, uh fujimori was and he managed to win an election uh it uh, um, after the party system collapsed in peru um just in ter- purely in terms of the trajectory to power that's kind of who who korea reminds me of just from your description a little bit it's an interesting connection especially since they're ideologically quite opposed right. to one another but it, but I think that it, you know, while I'm suspicious, and and from our prior conversations, I know you are too, of like um, studies of populism that just equate or even conflate right and left populism. Like I think we need to distinguish between them. But I do think that structurally, um, there are certain moments that, for economic or political or even issues of sort of constitutional crisis, are 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 auspicious for the rise of populist leaders. Um, I think there are interesting ways to compare across history in terms of the early ni- earlier nineties like variant of populism that was more neoliberal and right wing to then the early two thousands variant of populism that that um, proliferated across the the continent that was more left wing. But the deeper structural things that they were responding to provided openings for, in some ways, parallel sorts of political figures, though, with extremely different politics and, right. and sources of popular support. Right, right. Um, okay, so after Korea's electoral victory, the problematic of extractivismo uh, triggered a political realignment as activists that once fought for the nationalization of natural resources now came to oppose all resource extraction while the president himself promoted a uh, a resource nationalism that, though it uh, harked back to uh, or or had some affinities with the more radical resource nationalism, as you uh, uh, corrected my question, uh, he he himself is not really a radical resource nationalist uh, in that he's certainly not anti-capitalist. Um, nonetheless, uh, the president promoted this resource nationalism that sought to use the revenue for mineral and resource exports to fund social welfare and development programs. Um, extractivismo, as I understand it, refers to the ways that uh, Ecuadorian intellectuals and social movement actors have understood the political, economic, social, and ecological problems caused by natural resource extraction. Uh, what are some of the main themes and intellectual foundations of this discourse of extractivismo? Um, thanks for, for that question. And, and to situate it, I'm going to do something slightly annoying, which is go back uh, just a little bit in history. But mm-hmm. I think it'll answer the question about the intellectual and political roots of this, this 
um, militant critique of, of the extractive model in the language of, of activists, and also help clarify Korea's own positions, which are, as you said, inflected by prior social movement demands, but kind of watered them down a bit and, 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 and changed them in a few important ways. So, um, you know, one of the fascinating things about, about resource extraction in Latin America and, and in Ecuador as, uh, in particular is how many different radical and critical visions and imaginaries uh, resource extraction has sort of given rise to or occasioned. Um, and these range in my book, and there are more out there in the world, but, but the ones I cover in the book in Ecuador are a sort of earlier moment um, from the early 90s to the early 2000s. Um, that I call radical resource nationalism to describe the the grievances, demands, and critiques and positive visions on the part of popular social movements. And so in that period of neoliberalism that we were just describing, um, where there were various attempts to make a more neoliberal economy, and one of the main ways those attempts succeeded was by like deregulating the extractive sectors, right, and inviting more foreign capital Mm -hmm. in. And then, as I said, that created a whole set of conflicts between communities and, 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 and extractive firms. But in that moment, the primary, not the only, but the primary demand on the part of the indigenous movement nationally and, and a bunch of the indigenous sort of regional federations and also other allies that they worked with um, and, and among um, um, ordinary Ecuadorians that were organized into social movements, the primary demand was nationalize resource extraction. And what they meant at that, what they were referring to at that moment was oil. Because as I said, mining was still an early, very early phase thing. And oil was the predominant um, extractive sector in Ecuador. So what the demand was, is that Ecuadorians, um, meaning like um, working class, um, poor, um, excluded, marginalized Ecuadorians, the masses of Ecuadorians, like the 99%, to put it in that kind of language, should control our own resources. We should control our national wealth, and we sh- and the benefits from that that extraction should be redistributed equitably among Ecuadorians, and shouldn't just benefit domestic and foreign elites, right? And so, radical resource nationalism is the idea that the people, as like sort of glossed as like the nation, own their resources, that it's 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 national patrimony, and that it should be used to fund um, social needs and and to some extent economic development, but the idea is more around like meeting basic needs that are unmet by the neoliberal model. And what's interesting is that this is the prevailing kind of um, uh, critique of ex- left critique of extraction for over a decade um, or longer in, in Ecuador. Um, Simultaneous to this, as I kind of already have alluded to a few times, there were these intensifying conflicts um, over new oil extraction in the Amazon. And in those conflicts, there there emerged the beginnings of an even more, I would say, radical critique of extraction, if we want to put it in terms of more and less radical, or at least a different one, right? So the different critique, it doesn't refute the first one. Um, overall, most activists, indigenous and environmentalists and all sorts of activists in Ecuador in the 90s and early 2000s are in favor of national control over extraction and sovereignty over resources. Um, but what, what begins to emerge is, is, is the beginnings of what I end up calling this anti-extractive critique, right? Um, which is that Amazonian communities are starting to say, wait a second, we don't just want extraction to be like 
um, be under popular management or democratic control or national control. We want like a moratorium on extraction. We want to just stop this relentless expansion of the extractive frontier that is threatening our territories, threatening our livelihoods, and threatening our very cultural integrity as indigenous peoples, right? And so we get the beginnings of this more anti-extractive critique, but it's not fully fleshed out yet. What happens with, and now I'm going to directly answer your question. Mm -hmm. So Korea comes to power. He's elected in 2006. He starts in 2007 with his inauguration. And he immediately is like kind of adopting this prior era um, of, of, of indigenous and, and popular demands over extraction and saying, we're going to assert state authority over this. He doesn't do it in the same extremely radical register as the movements did. He's not anti-capitalist. He's not like, um, he's kind of anti-imperialist, but he's not against foreign capital. So he like courts foreign capital. He courts new contracts with Chinese firms, uh, with with um, with Canadian firms, with all sorts of firms, right? And so he's not anti-capitalist. He's not even against foreign investment, and he's also not nationalizing the sector, meaning he's not saying only state-owned companies can operate in these attractive sectors of oil and mining. So what he's doing instead is this sort of like watered-down version of resource um, nationalism, which is less radical. But basically what it does is renegotiate contracts, insert a little more state coordination regulation, and, and ensure, and this really does happen, that more dividends from extraction flow to the Ecuadorian people, to ordinary people and their social needs and to local communities. And so he does take, get the message of we need more social benefits from extraction, but he doesn't do so by like putting it under the auspices of like state or national control. Um, and so that's kind of his watered down resource nationalism. As he's implementing this, which a large part of which has to do with courting new investment in the mining sector and trying to channel those resources to both directly affected communities and the Ecuadorian population as, as a whole, as he's doing this, that more anti that more anti-extractive critique that really started in the Amazon that I noted earlier begins to sort of get more salient. Movements elsewhere, not just in the Amazon, in the Andes, in the coast, in all sorts of, of regions of Ecuador, begin to say, wait a second, we elected a left-wing government. And yes, we had demanded like state control, but we had demanded state control to serve the people's needs, not to court like foreign capital. And also, you know what? We're getting more disenchanted with extraction as a whole. You know, maybe previously we hadn't, you know, I'm kind of putting words in their mouth, but just to kind of explain to listeners, maybe previously we had demanded national control but now what we're demanding is we need to slow down this extraction. And actually, as they radicalize further, they demand an end to the extractive model to court, simpliciter, like not a socialist extractive model, not like a people's owned extractivism, but just an end to extractivism, an end to a model that they see as infecting not only capitalism, but even like socialism, like Korea calls himself a socialist. And they say, well, you're just as extractivist as your neoliberal predecessors. You're expanding this relentlessly, not paying attention to indigenous rights, not paying attention to the devastating environmental consequences, um, and also not paying attention to the fact that like you're just re-entrenching a primary export model that has never brought equitable economic or sustainable economic development to Ecuador, right? So they, in facing a left of center government, the movements that had previously demanded radical resource nationalism pivot away from that language almost entirely. Like it's a really interesting case of a total discursive shift. It takes a few years, but it, it happens. And then on the other side of that shift, they are saying an end to extraction and they are resisting every single manifestation 
of the expansion of extractive activity, whether that's resisting um, new oil drilling in the Amazon, whether it's resisting new mining attempts at mining projects in the Amazon and the Andes, whether it's going to the courthouses and ministries of Quito in the capital to resist regulatory changes that allow for further mining and, and oil extraction. So they're, they become very multifaceted in their tactics, um, and they are resisting in a rather unified way uh, the encroachment of the extractive frontier to new territory. Um, I I see some parallels, and I wonder if um, if there's any reality on the ground to this uh, between the shift to more of a, a post-extractivist um, uh, um, set of demands by social movements in Ecuador and uh, a broader discursive shift in in the region towards the 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 decolonial critique. Um, which builds on post-development thought from from uh, the 90s and 2000s. And here I'm thinking of people like Arturo Escobar, who's uh, written about uh, a book about pluriversal planning recently, um, um, Annabelle Quijano and uh, Walter Mignolo. Um, and a, a hallmark of that line of thinking is that uh, – they not only reject the the neoliberalism and and capitalism, but they also reject what they view as uh, uh, status developmental projects that are uh, uh, still represent an encroachment of the nation state on the territories of indigenous peoples and um, um, a reproduction of this logic of coloniality. Uh, um, associated with extractivist economies uh, that um, take cheap nature wherever they can get it, uh, whatever ends it supposedly serves. Do you see, is there any kind of connection between these discourses at all, or am I making that up? No, no, you're absolutely right. And you're also reminding me that I didn't fully answer your prior question, but I can do it now, which is like the intellectual foundations of, of, of this critique of what activists come to call the extractive model of development. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I want to just um, situate historically a little bit, and then I'll come to this sort of decolonial, the more recent decolonial tradition with figures like Escobar and, um, and Quijano being, being central among, among others. Um, so what, what's sort of interesting about the overall co- set of conflicts I'm describing, and, and, I, and I should say this, maybe I should have said this explicitly earlier, is they're all conflicts within the left, among leftists among different variants of leftism. And I, you know, part of my goal with this book is to kind of open up the, the left, especially to people less familiar with, with the sort of different internecine debates in the, in the Latin American left, and to say like the period of the pink tide when um, lots of, of countries were governed by left of center and, and all the way to more left-wing administrations, where you know at its height in the 2009-2010 moment, two-thirds of the region's inhabitants were governed by left of center administrations. So it's a real unique conjuncture in history of so many countries in the same region um, being ruled by, by leftist governments that come out of social movements you know, to more and less, which they're connected to, to more and less varying degrees, but they all come out of periods of social struggle. Um, and so you have the left coming to power. Um, and what that actually occasions is a deep set of debates over what is the left and what is radical transformation and how do we actually depart from capitalism, from colonialism, from um, not from insufficiently democratic states? Like, how do we actually depart from the historical patterns and trajectories that Latin America has been positioned in since 
colonialism, right, since conquest. And so it's a very generative and interesting set of debates with a lot of relevance to, you know, you debates among U.S. leftists and progressives, right, about how do we actually, what does it mean to state, take state power? Like, what would it mean for Bernie Sanders to win, right? What would that actually look like? How would that with that, with that, you know, and the U.S. is in a totally different position in the world economy, being in a hegemonic position, but yet debates about how to take the state from the left are still complicated, even in the core. And they're even more complicated and fraught in the peripheries of the world economy that, that have more limited tools available to them and have to struggle against so many different types of power, right, internally and externally, right? So a really rich set of debates is, is sort of unfolds in the pink tide moment and continues to today. And those debates draw on historical debates of dependency theory um, um, in the 1970s, which itself was not a unified theoretical framework, though it had some important, you know, uh, uh, themes or tropes that cut across different authors. But, you know, we can go um, to a variety of, 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 of uh, dependency theory figures, um, probably the one of the most um, uh, known ones to your audience might be Wallerstein, who was, who was influenced by dependency theory, but then sort of helped found world systems theory under the influence of dependency theory and other theories coming out of the global South, right? And so there's a rich set of debates in the 70s over precisely a similar set of questions, but in a different historical conjuncture. But what the reason I'm going back, and it seems maybe a little far afield into dependency theory, is that dependency theory um, which, which, and world systems theory, which kind of see the world as systemically intertwined, see core and periphery as um, two different positions in the world system, see development and underdevelopment as historically intertwined, meaning capitalism produces development for the core, and at this, by the same token, it produces underdevelopment and devastation and and um, economic quote unquote backwardness in the peripheries. Right, those are two sides of the same historical process. So that that dependency or world system theory kind of critique of global capitalism finds its way both into anti-extractive um, and decolonial kind of thought, just as much as it finds its way into the left in power and governments like Correa and Morales and, and Chavez and Lula and, and the Kirchners, right? So both the left in power and, and even the more sort of technocratic and like Correa variants and, and sort of left, even the less radically left variants of, of the left in power and the left in resistance, the anti-extractive movements, the indigenous movements, the territorial movements are both kind of picking up on different parts of this lineage of, of radical and critical Latin American thought. And they take it in different directions. So what the left in power does, and I'm simplifying a bit across various governments, but you know, for simplicity's sake, what the left in power does is say, yes, Latin America has been relegated to this low position in the world economy. And that means that the state should intervene and exercise its its, its abilities to coordinate and plan economic activity to at the very least like have a better planned extractive sector that benefits national people more than it does foreign capital, right? Um, um, and in some cases, they also try to get beyond extraction and, and to industrialize and things like that, right? To varying degrees of success. What the movements do is say, you know, actually like the state just being more involved in extraction does not change the fundamental insight of dependency theory, which is that extraction, um, having a, a, an economy dependent on resource extraction unleashes a whole set of pathologies um, that are political, cultural, economic, and otherwise, and especially subjects uh, indigenous peoples and locally affected communities um, to really relentless forms of violence and, and dispossession and does not bring anything like development. And, and, and the more radical of these 
of these discourses says actually also development shouldn't be a goal because development is bound up with this whole kind of relentless capitalism and extraction, right? So I, I won't get fully into that just to, to sort of save time, but just to say that, that these different understandings of what is the root cause and what is the root problem that are very shaped by these earlier debates over dependency and world systems inflect the whole set of debates that that is with among leftists in the time period that I'm looking at. Um, and what we can see with the anti-extractive activists is that they take a more militant and radical kind of critique of, of extraction that, that, that also targets left-wing governments, and that they also combine it, as your question noted, with, um, with a sort of revalorization of indigeneity, of indigenous culture, of ancestral knowledge, um, with also a, a deeper critique of development as just like a guise of capitalist modernity and as a sort of trap um, and, and, a, and a dead end, and, and to sort of think about what would an economy look like that didn't aim for relentless growth and, and, and development as just increasing GDP, right? And then there's a whole set of debates, you know, even among those folks about, you know, is, um, is post-extractivism like a different and better form of development? Or is it, again, a rejection of development to court? And, you know, I won't split too many hairs there, but I just want to give listeners a sense that these debates are rich, multi-layered, and like, there are various positions to occupy what even within movements um, around these questions. Right. And I think that the way um, political scientists tend to think about so-called social cleavages leads to a sort of binary way of thinking about a lot of these conflicts, left versus right, uh, center versus periphery, um, uh, within countries as well as in in the broader international system. Um, I do research on Turkey, so I see this kind of binary way of thinking with secular versus Islamic that uh, overlooks uh, enormously consequential debates uh, um, within sides of these social cleavages uh, and within uh, within the leftist camp here, within the Islamist camp in, in Turkey that have um, uh, enormous uh, political consequences um, uh, for actors in power and for uh, in this case, the relationship between um, the left in power and the left in in, in the streets, if you will. Um, I think that that's uh, something that I f- find frustrating about um, contemporary comparative politics, that we uh, essentialize these um, social movements or, or groupings based on uh, their position on some sort of spectrum, and we overlook these, um, these enormous debates and don't take discourse and ideas seriously. Um, So shortly after Correa took office, he called for a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution. Uh, What was Correa hoping to achieve with this new constitution? And what were some of the novel features of the new document? Yeah, it's it's such an uh, such an interesting moment, um, and I also just want to r- recommend to your listeners the work of Angelica Bernal, who has an amazing mm. uh, uh, book, uh, "Beyond Origins," if I'm not mistaken, is the title of it. That's and correct. She has, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a fantastic book. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, just an excellent work of both comparative theory, mm-hmm. but also of a theory compared to politics, like mm-hmm. and even American right? Because she has multiple kind of empirical cases, but she's looking at them for to investigate like really longstanding questions of political theory in terms of like the founding of new political orders and obviously constituent moments and constituent processes in terms of rewriting constitutions are are very key um, uh, types of those moments. And and she she explores the Ecuador case as well as other pink tide governments. So um, so I recommend that. But but yeah, so Correa 
um, uh, put forward to the Ecuadorian people a, a referendum over whether they wanted to rewrite the constitution, to, to establish a constituent assembly empowered to rewrite the constitution. Um, and he did so um, for his own reasons, surely, and I'll get to that, but also first and foremost, I would say he was pushed to do that by like at that point, almost decades of social movement um, struggles and social movements that had increasingly identified the constitution as a obstacle to social transformation. And so in 1997, you had um, the first time in Ecuador's recent history of a rewriting of the constitution. So there was a constituent assembly in 1997-98 that produced the 1998 constitution, which itself was the partial result of social mobilization and the indigenous movement was very active and they got some real uh, improvements and, and new rights um, codified in that constitution, but it wasn't enough um, from their perspective. And it happened in a neoliberal moment of governance and there were real limitations to how much they could achieve. So they have this new opportunity, they, the indigenous movements and also other popular movements to to have a new constituent process under the under the the um, in the context of a leftist government that's going to be they thought and and was to some extent more receptive to their more radical demands for 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 new constitutional um for, for real legal innovations actually in the constitution. So they are pushing on this, they're demanding it, they're demanding it for years. Um, Correa receives their demand and he implements it by having this referendum. It's overwhelmingly approved by the Ecuadorian people to rewrite the constitution, which itself is an amazing fact. I mean, it's hard. In the US, we're used to like this kind of fetishized constitution that like the idea that it could ever be changed is like even beyond the thinking of like progressives and, 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 and leftists to some extent, right? Like, it's just like a fact we have this constitution. Whereas in Latin America, in this moment, you had a lot of movements that were explicitly, and not just in Ecuador, in Bolivia and Venezuela, that were explicitly demanding a new constitution. And they saw constitutions as vehicles of social transformation, which is a very interesting set. You know, I'll leave that to the legal and law and society scholars to think about more, but it's a very interesting uh, kind of social demand. Um, and so anyway, it moves forward. The constitution's ratified. People are elected to the constitution, to constituent assembly. Um, the majority of them come from Korea's party, which at or vehicle, you know, as I said earlier, it's not a very well institutionalized party, which, um, which, which therefore makes sense of the fact that there it was a broad coalition of the left, meaning that the people that were elected as delegates from Alianza País, his party, came from various strands of the left, including the indigenous movement, right? And so you have you have like this sort of het left heterogeneous left party that gets a lot of delegates elected, the majority. In addition to that, you have other left wing parties, smaller left parties that already existed. You have the indigenous party itself, Pachacutic, and then you have right wing parties and centrist parties that get delegates in. But 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 the left commands the majority of the constituent assembly, both his the par, uh, Correa's party and the other parties, um, adding them all together, a significant majority. So the left is in a good position to sort of guide this process. Um, Correa does have you know additional reasons on, in addition to the social um, demands, which are that as I said and as we discussed, he's this heterodox left wing economist. He really thinks that this the role of the state in the economy needs to be codified in a more explicit way. And he also, again, his his sort of left Catholicism and social doctrine, he thinks that social rights and the rights to a livelihood, the right to social care, you know, the right to subsistence, all of these things need to be codified, right? And so he has his own goals and. So Social movements share some of those goals, but also have their own goals, right? So lots of different goals. And the, the Constituent Assembly is the occasion for a set of fascinating debates over the role of the state of the economy, over the relationship between the state and natural resources, over the 
the what ends up being an expansive bill of collective rights of not only indigenous peoples, but Afro-descendant and Montubian peoples in, in Ecuador, and also collective rights for people without um, specific I, uh, ethnic identities, right, who identify as mestizo, let's say, right? So lots of new collective rights. Um, also, though, at the same time, a much clearer role for the state in the economy, especially in the extractive sectors. So like the state is now the owner of um, uh, the, the natural resource patrimony and has a final say, even vis-a-vis -vis communities, over how those natural resources are exploited, right? But communities also have new rights vis-a-vis -vis the state and firms to also have a say in how natural resources are exploited. So it's like, both the state and communities are newly empowered. And we can see how this sort of adds fire to um, conflicts over extraction because both the state and affected communities, indigenous and non-indigenous, have new legal um, justifications for saying that they should be the ones to decide whether an extractive project goes forward. Um, and the debates over those issues, over indigenous rights, resource extraction, territorial um, you know, autonomy, um, and who has the say over, over territorial dynamics, um, social rights, all of these things are, you know, divide different members of, of the constituent um, assembly against one another. And they're sort of provisionally settled in this extremely long constitution that is a result. And it's literally among the most progressive constitutions in the world. If we put sort of South Africa's constitution, Bolivia's constitution, Ecuador's constitution, I think there's no doubt that Ecuador is among the most um, progressive constitutions because it not only, um, uh, and here I'm papering over some of those differences among leftists, but just to say like it grants rights to nature, it grants new rights to indigenous communities, it grants new social and economic rights to all Ecuadorians, and it, it, it clarifies that the sovereign state whose sovereignty, as it says on page one of the constitution, resides in the popular will of the people a sovereign state has the right to control its economic destiny. And like, those are all laid out. Not only that, but to go back to your decolonial, you know, these interesting sort of indigenous discourses and decolonial discourses, it also picks some of those up. And this comes in through indigenous delegates and delegates with connections to the indigenous movement. So it has um, the right to live well, which is a, I'm saying it in English, the Spanish is buen vivir, the Quechua uh, is suma causai. And so this is an indigenous concept that's an alternative to development as the goal. And instead of like growth being the goal, the goal is living well among within human society and between humans and nature, right? So that language makes it into the constitution. You know, uh, also Quechua is recognized as, as an official language, not on the same level as Spanish. And that was a problem, you know, that was a conflict between indigenous movements and the state, but it is recognized as an official language in a way it hadn't been previously. And then the other big victory for the indigenous movement is that Ecuador is explicitly recognized as a plurinational state, not just a state of popular sovereignty and democratic will, as I already said, but as a plurinational one in which there are multiple ethnicities that are equally recognized as, as part of the polity. Um, and this is another legal innovation that's really interesting. And I suggest folks that are in the sort of law and society and constitutional scholarship world look into it. Um, how that plays out in practice is another thing, but the fact that it's codified at all is a, is a really interesting development. Um, so that's the constitutional assembly, the, and then the constitution that results um, that is ratified in 2008, overwhelmingly so, and then becomes the law of the land in terms of other laws have to be in line with the constitution um, and other government policies have to align with the constitutional um, uh, articles and clauses. Um, yeah, and this is a, a good way to segue into uh, your discussion of uh, 
prior consultation, uh, which you devote a chapter to. And, and prior consultation is uh, a point where these two conflicting ideas of the plurinational state and um, the nation state with popular sovereignty uh, clash with each other, right? And also there's a clash between um, centralized state authority uh, and uh, localized territorial authority. Um, The question of who are the people is being raised here, right? Uh, So prior consultation um, uh, is basically the idea that the affected community, and we can talk about uh, how even the notion of an affected community is is a, a topic of, of political contention uh, in, in these debates, but the affected community has the opportunity to either be informed if you're pro-mining uh, about um, the opportunities created by uh, mining and maybe some of the environmental consequences if they decide to be honest. Uh, or it means if you're uh, some uh, for the indigenous groups, it means something uh, much stronger. It means the ability to essentially wield a veto power over over mining projects that they deem to be um, uh, uh, damaging. Um, so, um, uh, how does the prior consultation uh, conflict uh, play out, and what sorts of questions does it raise about democratic theory? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I think that this is this is a part of the book that speaks most to um, really longstanding debates in democratic theory of mm-hmm. of who the people are, um, but also what their powers are. Right? Sometimes we talk about when we talk about popular sovereignty or the demos or or these more recent debates over populism. Um, the focus is really on like the identity of the people, like like who are they and and how do we boundaries and that's a very interesting question itself but there's like another question that doesn't always get addressed which is like how do the people rule themselves like through what practices does that happen state and its institutions of of electoral institutions and other institutions of like sort of formal political engagement and civic engagement or does it happen in contentious practices that might be against um, or targeting even the formal institutions of democracy, right? And so there's this other tradition of, of radical democracy, which um, I think like Sheldon Wolin, um, but also Umberto Unger, um, Rigoberto, excuse me, Unger, and and um, and and Muth's older work on radical democracy are, are interesting touchstones. Um, I also love Enrique Dussel's work, or the Argentinian. Um, philosopher of liberation. So all of these folks, um, and then there's a whole interesting literature in, in Latin America on sort of democratizing the state and thinking of that as something that happens partly through what social movements do, right? Um, not just through changes in formal institutions. So there's a whole rich set of debates and traditions of thinking through um, um, popular power in ways that are not always about state institutions, though might include them or might target them or might be in sort of dialogue or contention with them, right? And so that's a whole set of problems and questions that I'm getting at in 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 this empirical study of of what um, social movements and directly affected communities, and by that I mean the communities that are situated near mining or oil projects. And that itself is actually a legal term that corporations use and states use and is also international law uses, like directly affected communities, which are in many cases, but not always indigenous or identify as indigenous, right? And so you have these directly affected communities and 
a whole set of democratic questions opens up that becomes very live and vibrant under the Korea administration because of the constitution, as I mentioned, because the constitution really codifies the rights of these communities to have a role, to be consulted in um, extractive um, or mega development or mega agricultural pro- projects that affect their territory, livelihoods, and culture, right? And so they have the right to be consulted. But then a whole set of questions open up, like what does consultation mean? Who is the subject exactly to be consulted? Because I said directly affected communities, but there's a community that might be next door to the mine. There's a community that might be downstream, literally, I mean, like like that, that whose water is affected by the contamination of that project, right? Then there are urban communities that also like are, are whose livelihoods might be affected by what happens in rural hinterlands and peripheries um, in terms of other forms of air and water pollution, right? So you have a whole set of questions over who is the community. And then you have the national community, um, um, which I'll come back to in a moment, but they are also a relevant, obviously, you know, rendering of the demos here. Um, so you have these communities that are newly empowered constitutionally to have this role, but who they are and then what their powers are, right? Like what, what does it mean to be consulted? Does it mean you have veto power? Does it mean um, uh, that you need to be consulted before the project is even uh, uh, given a, a license or a concession to a firm? Like when the state just starts contemplating the project, so really early stages, because the whole legal language of, of consultation in the ILO um, on Convention um, 189 is um, is free prior and informed. So prior to what, free from what, um, uh, um, and informed in what type of substance, right? And and so there's a whole interesting set of debates there. But what ends up happening in while I'm doing field work, literally while I'm doing field work, like it's like my second month of field work, and all of a sudden this debate erupts over whether um, uh, the communities in the Southern Highlands have been properly consulted or not about this um, uh, gold mining project that is going to affect not only rural communities in SY, that's the name of the province, um, not only rural, and, and it's a big dairy farming region. So when I say rural, it doesn't always mean like peasant or marginalized, like per se. Um, it, these are like in some cases, middle class, um, uh, but or, or have small kind of agricultural enterprises. It's like a, a dairy farming region, right, with a vibrant dairy farming economy. Um, and so you have those people, including, of course, more marginalized and dispossessed peasants in that region. And then, you know, not so far away, you have the third largest city in Ecuador, Cuenca, which is in the same province and, and is fed um, by the same uh, water system and watershed as, as is these directly affected communities are concerned about the mine affecting, right? So you have urban communities that also get involved. So this gets this gets very contentious because the government is really pushing for this project, which is called Kim Sakocha at the time. They've changed the name of it since. But anyway, it's called the Kim Sakocha Project. And it's in the Highland um, Paramos, which are a really interesting ecosystem. That's like a highland wetland system that, again, nourishes through its its waterways um, these agricultural um, um, uh, these agricultural sectors and also the, the the city further at a lower elevation. Um, so you you have these these communities that become that that start to say, wait a second, we haven't been fully consulted over this, and our agriculture might suffer, and our drinking water might suffer, and also our urban neighbors' drinking water is going to suffer, right? And they press on this issue because. Korea, you know, is has identified Kim Sokocha as a strategic project. He visits there, like you know, early in his administration. He wants to really highlight and showcase this project. He wants the the contract to go through and and the project to proceed. And so, in month two of my field work, which is in October two thousand eleven, wow, it's so long ago. Um, there's a um, the communities start to say, wait a second, we haven't been consulted, and you know what? We don't even trust the state to really consult us, even though they say that they're going to. 
we are going to organize our own consultation. And the way that they do that, um, and this is what I meant kind of much earlier in our conversation about like how prior struggles bequeath these organizational forms that then get redeployed to other purposes, right? So in this case, what it was, was a water association, which is a normal, typical, and constitutionally and legally recognized entity in, in Ecuador. In Ecuador, in rural areas, and even some urban areas, people manage their own water, both for irrigation and drinking. Um, and, and, that's, and that's recognized, and the state approves of that. And so there's a UNAGUA, a water association in this, in this region, and but what's happened is in the prior years, they have been kind of almost converted into an anti-mining organization because the water users, the water managers, the local people that manage their water have become so concerned about the potential effect of mining on um, their water system. And so this water management entity organizes a consultation of its own members, not of every person that lives in the, in the relevant parishes or, or, the, or the, um, the county or the, you know, however you want to frame it, not everyone, but just the, the 1500, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, members of their water system. And they, those members have normal voting procedures. Like they vote on things all the time over how to manage the water system. So it's not a new thing to like, organize a day of voting, right? And so, but what they organize a day of voting on is the Kim Sokocha project. And what members are asked by, by this organization that they belong to is, are you in favor of mining in, um, that's going to affect the, the, the watershed? Um, are you in favor of the Kim Sokocha project? And they vote. There's a day of voting. I was lucky enough to observe it and actually be invited to be like a quote international observer. You know, they wanted folks around and make sure that the electoral process was was rigorous and fair. And so I observed this whole day. And what happens is like something like 93% of the members of Unagua vote against the project. And and what this sets off also is a set, you know, of debates that I've already referenced over who the people are and the state responds even before the day of voting. They are already undermining it, saying it's unconstitutional. Only the state can consult. What are these people doing? It's illegal X, Y, and Z. Then they change tax and they start saying, this is Korea mainly, but also other state actors start saying, um, well, actually the people of Ecuador and now the relevant people is the nation, Right. The people of Ecuador have already uh, have already democratically chosen this government, and there's a real argument there. I don't want to just dismiss it. Like, yes, he's used instrumentally, but it's it's like a real question. Like, if the national, you know, demos, let's say, votes in a president who clearly campaigns on the fact that he's going to not stop extraction but continue it, but try to make it more beneficial to the people, um, what power should local communities have to stop that? But, you know, the state kind of plays both sides because they play up that argument. And they also say also like local people voted for Korea, like actually Korea won in a landslide if you go to the parish level, like election results. So they want to claim national support. They want to claim local support. And then what's interesting is is the this local organization and their allies are sort of doing something similar. I don't want to equate them, but there's like an interesting dynamic to the conflict where they're saying we are. Um, uh, a local community that says no to this, and we have clear voting, uh, a clear um, uh, day of voting to, to 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 show that we're against it democratically. So they're using like they're redeploying a institution that's set up in the con- constitution, which says prior consultation is a right, and there's going to be a set of procedures. And they're saying we're going to take this in our own hands, and we have local clear local opposition. But then they also start to claim broader opposition because they have allies of in anti-mining groups all over the country. And they're saying there's actually a movement that's opposed to this. And it's not even just this locality. So there's this interesting kind of political scaling process where actors on different sides of this dynamic are claiming both local and national allegiances to their project. And they're 
doing so on the terrain of democracy, on the terrain of participatory institutions, and on the terrain of collective rights, a terrain that is furnished by the Constitution. Um, and it's it's just, it's a really fascinating, I mean, I won't get into every twist and turn, people can read the book, but, you know, it's, it's really interesting because it's not just a, um, you know, a parochial thing that happens in Ecuador. Across Latin America and the global South and in North America, like indigenous communities are claiming the right to prior consultation with good legal um, uh, uh, justification because it's an international right that many countries in the world are party to or have ratified, whether it's the ILO convention I mentioned or the UN declaration on indigenous rights. So there's a variety of legal tools that 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 communities are using in their fight against oil or mega development dams, you know, mega agriculture, um, and, and all, and mining that, that, that has real environmental effects and dispossesses them of their land. So this is a dynamic that is not unique to Ecuador, but, but, um, was very vibrant at the moment of me doing field work in Ecuador. Yeah. This question of, uh, who are the relevant people and which body should be making, um, um, decisions about whether these projects go through or not is something uh, touches on something that I think about a lot about what is the role of protests in a democracy? What is the role of, of disrupting um, social and economic processes in order to uh, push a political agenda? Um, because I think that empirical political scientists, uh, perhaps unwittingly, uh, hue to a Schumpeterian understanding of democracy. That's basically the people vote and then they go about their business and leave the, 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 the business to the politicians, the business of state to the, the politicians and the bureaucrats. And, um, that's sort of the minimal definition of, of democracy, uh, and the minimal understanding of it. But I think that that, um, um, erases that, kind of uh, rules out or leaves um, unobserved a lot of contention that happens around um, resource use, around uh, protests for the right to the city, but also um, uh, disruptions in acts of civil disobedience that um, support more conservative or, or right-leaning causes as well. We see it on, on uh, by actors supporting all kinds of different agendas to try to um, disrupt business as usual in order to push their uh, their their process. And you can make a radical democracy argument saying that um, in a world where states are at least as accountable to capital as they are to uh, voters, this is a necessary part of the arsenal of democracy. But you can also say that, well, uh, as Korea um, points out, and I think that there's something to this, if you just let everyone, if you let every group have uh, a veto over things that they don't like, then how can the state do anything on behalf of the community, even when it's empowered by an electoral majority? Um, I think that this is a really sticky question uh, that I don't have firm answers to. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it on the one hand, I'm just going to sort of affirm what you've said, which is that I think on the one hand, we should be more expansive as political scientists or social scientists in general about what counts as a democratic institution or a democratic practice or a democratic, you know, identity. I don't mean more expansive to include things that are like authoritarian or whatever, though that's another tricky, uh, you know, distinction that is is much trickier when we're studying it in practice and your own research is like you know really at that at that juncture of where do we divide 
democracy from authoritarianism and the, the, the binary is not so useful often, right? But, you know, that, that, that aside, even among things that I think are clearly, you know, within the, the ambit of, of democracy, oftentimes political scientists really only focus on them if they have to do with formal state institutions. And the problem with that is, is, is it, is even from a, a perspective of just historical rigor, it really impoverishes things because I think that, you know, even among relatively mainstream political scientists, and I'm thinking of the, the democratization literature, it's clear that those institutions of, you know, electoral institutions, legislative, deliberative institutions, whatever they are, are always outcomes of social struggles that go beyond take place in, in, in sites that are beyond the, the sort of terrain of just like the formal state, right? So like, even like, you know, where do we get the franchise from? Um, we don't get it because, you know, within the existing institutions, state actors just decided to, to, to uh, make, allow people without property to vote um, in Europe or the US or wherever it was, right? We get it because like social struggles um, um, force them to do so. And then we get backslides um, or, or, or more, um, you know, uh, sort of anti-democratic institutions because elites of various sorts are uncomfortable with how far democracy is going, right? So like, Democracy itself is the product of social struggles that exceed the state um, or that take place outside of, of the immediate ambit of the state. Um, and so that's reason enough to focus beyond the state when we think about what the regime type is. Um, but I also think and this might be getting slightly ahead, though maybe we're almost there with the sort of broader questions about how to study uh, resource, um, uh, rentier states or petro states, you know, thinking about the resource curse. And I don't want to skip too ahead, but, and, I, and I'll sort of just stop here and, and let you direct the conversation. But I just want to flag that, like, part of what's interesting about studying what social movements are doing in resource dependent states is to really complicate um, and, and nuance our understanding of the political effects. Of, of resource dependency. Because um, when we open up um, democracy and include non, what non-state actors are doing, as in this case, um, we get a really different read on whether um, um, for oil or mineral dependency is, quote, good or bad for democracy. Um, it, gets, it gets harder to answer that question in a yes or no way. Um, and so I'll, I'll pause there, but that's, I think, another reason to, to, to kind of you know, open things up a bit in terms of how we study um, democratic practice. Right. And um, one more thing on, on this question of, of how should we study democratization and the risks of, of um, an excessive focus on um, elections as the be-all end-all of democracy is that it, it risks uh, overlooking a lot of repression that occurs uh, around trying to prevent social movements from having the capacity to organize and push their claims beyond uh, beyond the state itself. Um, I think that, uh, I see a lot of countries get coded as democracies that have all sorts of authoritarian practices, uh, the U S included, um, for a long period of time, I would argue continuing. Um, um, and, uh, this, these authoritarian practices become invisible to scholars of democracy and democratization uh, when they uh, focus exclusively on our elections competitive, can everyone vote? Um, can the ruling party lose? Often that's not uh, the sole concern of, of the states, for example, the security apparatus, which is uh, a lot of what I study. Um, it's not necessarily about one party or the other coming out ahead in the election. It's about making sure that 
more uh, radical or people, more radical groups or groups that are considered outside of the definition, the acceptable definition of the people don't get to press their claims and don't get to have a, a voice. And um, I think that, yeah, we just lose, uh, um, uh, we narrow our vision excessively by by focusing too much on, on elections. Um, okay, so uh, um, uh, another uh, major battleground between the state and social movement actors. Before we talk about the resource curse, I do want to talk a little bit about this question of information and expertise that come that arises. Um, and this is some another kind of big question of of um, democracy and the role of of quote unquote experts in democracy because uh, you you note how. Um, the Korea administration really stakes their claim to um, having the willingness to coordinate the economy and having the political neutrality and, and technical, like a quote unquote, a political technical expertise necessary to decide whether um, a mining project is going to have excessive uh, environmental consequences for a community and therefore should not be pursued. Um, whereas social movement actors call that expertise into question and critical um, bureaucrats themselves question whether the state has the expertise that it claims to uh, in order to coordinate um, um, uh, resource extraction given the the hollowing out of the state uh, because of neoliberal reforms and the deregulation of the sector. Um, the state whatever expertise it may once have had about uh, the consequences of mining and, and oil projects, uh, it has a sense it may have lost. Um, so uh, uh, what were some of the critical concerns of these critical bureaucrats and um, how did state actors portray members of communities that would be affected by new mining projects? Yeah, um, thanks for bringing um, uh, this up. This is the, the sort of penultimate chapter of the book before the, the conclusion. And in a way, it, it, there's actually some um, resonance with just the end of our prior conversation in response to the prior question, which is that, you know, in addition to kind of um, opening up what counts as democracy, um, and in addition, as I said earlier, to sort of opening up what the left is and looking at differences among leftists, what I'm doing here is like opening up the state a bit, right? And so instead of treating the state as a monolithic actor that we almost anthropomorphize even that rendering, the state does X, right? Um, uh, I don't think is actually very useful to, to understanding how states operate, um, what states are and the complexities like they're in. And so instead... I look at um, at the bureaucracy as a kind of another field of, of dispute. And the, the dispute in the bureaucracy is not between the state and movements, but it's between different bureaucrats and also elected officials that they are kind of accountable to in some way. Um, and so there's real divisions in the Ecuadorian state over the same questions that divide the state 
and social movements, right? Those divisions reverberate within the state and actually are a clear case, in my view, of how movement discourses and demands um, cannot, can actually make their way into the ideas of state actors, right? Which is just another reason to study social movements when we study political economy. Um, and, and so in this case, we have state actors that are very hard line in favor of extraction at all costs. Like they're almost like they're with Korea and sometimes even beyond him. Like they're just like, we gotta, we gotta make these contracts with foreign firms. We gotta bring the investment in and then we'll do our best to redistribute the gains from, from the investments. So those are like the pro extraction bureaucrats and they're primarily in the ministries that deal directly with firms. And you can actually see how, how, influence they are by their um, corporate counterparts. And so another thing this does is make us think critically about the left in power, right? Just because you have the left in power does not mean that there's no corporate influence, right? And especially when you're a state in the periphery and you're dependent on foreign capital, that influence can take a variety of forms, right? Okay, so we have the pro-extraction folks. But then there are the people you just asked me about, the critical bureaucrats, I call them. Um, critical because they're critical of like the overriding policies of the administration they're supposed to serve. Um, and in this case, what they're most critical of is something similar that the movements are critical of, which is the relentless extraction. And they don't have the same exact radical, like decolonial, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, you know, et cetera, et cetera, critiques that movements do. But they are, but they are influenced by those critiques, and they're influenced by some of the same strains and radical and critical Latin American thought that I mentioned earlier. And they are concerned that Ecuador is reproducing its own kind of domination in a way, like it's reproducing its own position in the world system that keeps it in this primary extraction and export mode, and that is a obstacle in their view to economic development. So another thing that you know differentiates them from the movements is that they are much clearer that like, yes, we want economic development in, in rather mainstream terms. Like we want to move up the ladder of value added production. We want a bigger GDP, et cetera. Um, but we want to do so in a way that actually gets us there. And they don't see, you know, constant extraction as a good route there. And they are also in addition concerned with the social unrest that it causes, right? They're concerned that it causes social conflict. And they also even think that indigenous communities and environmentalists make some valid points. Like, they are running rough, roughshod over some of the rights guaranteed in the Constitution. They are depleting local environments that might even have, you know, and that might even have negative economic effects. Because when you deplete a local environment, you reduce the possibility of, of agriculture or of um, ecotourism or of other potential livelihoods or even scientific research, which is something that critical bureaucrats see as a potential like alternative to extraction kind of sector is like the, the knowledge economy, right? And they think Ecuador, for all the reasons previously described, is like a great place for like cutting edge scientific research on biodiversity, but also on some of the ecosystem services, so-called, and, and products um, like medicinal and otherwise pharmaceutical that can be, um, uh, that, that can be created or synthesized due to research on, on biodiversity. So they, they want to slow things down. They're not anti-extraction, but they're like not happy with how fast things are moving and they want clearer regulations. Um, and so these people are like in, are fighting with their colleagues and they're fighting with the firms and the president, um, uh, fighting, you know, a little stronger word, but they're debating and they're using bureaucratic tools to try to slow things down in various ways. Um, and, and, and so I kind of bring the in, intrastate conflict into view and show that the state in this moment of like trying to set up a new extractive sector is sort of pulled between on the one hand, the, the exigencies of, of, of the corporations that want to sign these contracts. And on the other hand, the exigencies of the, of the movements that want to, that want an end to extraction. And we can see 
how those different non-state actors, their demands and ideas reverberate and shape and influence what happens within the state. Um, that's one set of things to say. And let me just address briefly like your this, the, the latter part of your question. Um, one of the interesting things that I found, and this is actually something that critical bureaucrats and their pro-extractive colleagues share, but they just kind of go about it in slightly different ways. But it's something that was shared broadly across state actors and corporate actors, um, it's worth noting, is um, a sort of generic paradigm through which they interpreted social conflict. So I just said that the critical bureaucrats were actually concerned about this social conflict. The pro-extraction people are also kind of concerned about it too, because it's like an impediment to extraction. So everyone's concerned about it. Um, and then what they need to have is a way to interpret it. Um, some of the critical bureaucrats think that the social conflict is for like kind of really valid reasons because of the econ- uh, the environmental and uh, effects, for example, of extraction. But what a lot of them think overall is that the reason for social conflict is because communities are misinformed. They don't do not properly understand why actually extraction is beneficial and instead think it's going to be only negative. Um, and this is what I call a sort of information discourse. And what it is, is like an extremely technocratic way to view social, the origins of social conflict. And this is not unique to Ecuador. There's like work, um, you know, on development projects, on extractive projects and on the social conflict around them in all corners of the global South, especially, but also I should say, you know, in the U S um, in Canada, um, where what elite actors do, the state and corporations, when they see social conflict is they say, oh, these communities just don't get it. We just need to explain to them better why they should love extraction. And so it's kind of like this infinite self-reaffirming discourse because anytime you see social conflict, the prescription is more information. And if communities resist the information you give them, you do a corporate presentation or a state presentation on how great the project is, then it's like uh, the prescription is more information, right? And so it it's sort of like this kind of weird loop that they get into where they never solve the structural causes of the conflict. They never actually really address communities' concerns um, or really like substantively regulate the, the, the project so that they don't create these environmental issues. Um, uh, what they do is just sort of kind of blame the communities for being underinformed or the critical bureaucrats, what they do is sort of blame the state for not properly informing the community. So it's a little more of like a critical variant of this, but the prescription is more or less the same. Um, You know, and then the last thing I will say on this really briefly is that what's sort of an interesting contradiction or tension, and you already alluded to this among the critical bureaucrats, is that they think that the communities are underinformed. They think that's sort of the state's fault, like the state should do a better job informing the communities. But then they also call into question the the ability of the state to do this because the the more most critical of the bureaucrats tell me in interview after interview that actually the state doesn't even know what the effects of these projects are they don't even know what resources um its territory contains because all of that information in in this across the global south not just in 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 ecuador is really dominated by um, or monopolized by corporations. It's corporations that know precisely what the, the deposit is and that commission these environmental impact assessments to figure out the environmental effects. The state is like, has a backseat to this process. And the state in Latin America has been historically, you know, low capacity in terms of its regulatory apparatus. Um, and we could get into the reasons why, but I won't even go there. But just to say what critical bureaucrats do that's very interesting is they both say, 
the citizens are underinformed and the state should do a better job educating them about the benefits of extraction. The state should also slow down extraction because it's 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 not it's not good to do it so fast and it's undermining a more sustainable development model. But also the state has trouble doing any of this because the state lacks not only the regulatory capacity, but the like epistemological foundations of regulation, which are knowing what resources your territory has and what consequences extraction of them might bring. Um, I, when you were talking about the information discourse that um, state actors and corporate actors have uh, uh, this idea that um, social conflict is rooted in a lack of information, that the, the parallels with me with the cases I study of guardian democracy, or as they're called, tutelary democracy, really uh, uh, stand out because um, this is the response that um, militaries in Turkey and Thailand and uh, a lot of other societies that um, experience recurrent coups or coup attempts have where the the military blames um, blames politicians for for stirring up social discontent but they also blame the people themselves for being gullible and for being duped by politicians and their response is never to acknowledge um, um, the uh, um, demands that citizens have that lead them to vote for, for example, populist politicians that the military then overthrows, their solution is more repression, a more restrictive information landscape, um, a more uh, dumbed down education system that doesn't uh, uh, that's, you know, more rote learning, less, you know, critical thinking skills or anything like that. Um, I think that that's uh, a really authoritarian way of understanding social conflict of, of not even granting your uh, interlocutors a grounds or, or an, uh, a belief that they have some kind of legitimate uh, uh, standing to present their views, but just the belief that the people are, are gullible and easily duped. And so we need to hand control over to the experts, even if they're elected it's still a very top-down way of managing society yeah and it's and it's also incoherent and this was even suggested a little bit in your own uh, sort of presentation there um and and was definitely the case in ecuador where like activists who resisted extraction were simultaneously branded as like manipulating right intentionally manipulating communities or even themselves or just like intentionally misrepresenting the facts right Um, but at the same time, that also made me think of uh, the outside agitators fallacy, yeah. like, oh, everything's going just fine in this city. Nobody's upset about cops killing, you know, people yeah. in their community. It's just these outside agitators stirring things up, right? Very similar. And it becomes difficult to actually, for the state to maintain a coherent argument around like, okay, well, are people intentionally like brewing, you know, stirring the pot and stirring conflict? Or are they the victims of, you know, being manipulated by somebody else and they're sort of both and and all it does is bolter, bolster and ultimately like both repressive and technocratic approach to conflict management mm-hmm. right um so i do want to ask about the the resource curse this will have to be um uh my last question um uh, because i have to go pretty soon but um i do want to talk about the the predominantly quantitative and cross-national literature on political science that argues that natural resources um, produce authoritarianism and civil war because revenues can be used to buy off or co-op dissent. Um, and uh, 
access to oil revenues allows rulers to avoid having to bargain with citizens over the levels of taxation. Although some people like that Dunning would argue that that's actually a benefit for democracy because it means that uh, it lessens distributional conflict uh, between uh, elites and poor members of society and highly unequal societies. Um, and um, but one thing that that sticks out to me about this literature is that it's so focused on um, the uh, post facto uh, revenues gained from exchanging these commodities that conflicts over the production and extraction of these commodities are really neglected in this literature. Uh, and I think that that's because of this grounding in um, neoclassical economics, which neglects production altogether um, in a lot of ways. Um, but, uh, how does your book speak to the resource curse literature? Um, yeah. Well, that, that's such a great setup and a nice overview for people less familiar of the different arguments, but the arguments take place on the same terrain, right? Like the arguments are always about what are the consequences of extraction? Whereas where an extraction is understood almost as like a purely distributional issue, um, the focus is almost entirely on how resource dependency um, allows states to have access to sort of like a pot of like economic rents that are detached from productive economic activity, ostensibly, and that they can distribute and allocate these resources in ways that shore up their their rule, their coalition, um, maybe allow them to have certain sort of pet economic projects and also shore up repression. Um, and all of those things can happen. I don't deny a single one of those things happens in many resource-dependent states. Um, uh, uh, and and th that's undeniable. But, but the issue is why start the study of this economic sector, which is a deeply politicized economic sector, um, with the point of distribution of resource rents? Um, why not look at everything that happens prior to that um, and, and after it, for that matter, right? Um, and I think it's just a really truncated view of sort of what we might call like the extractive process, let's say, um, um, and, and to, to sort of use that phrase a little bit from sort of process tracing. Like there's this whole set of sequences of political and economic and environmental uh, events that that is, is really kind of foreshortened in this way. Um, and um, so, so I think it's really interesting. I think these debates are still interesting and I read them all and I kind of actually really like Dunning's argument just because it's so like monoclastic and actually said actually resource booms are good for democracy and he has interesting evidence from Latin America um, um, and, and, and I find his scholarship to be interesting. However, I still think it takes place within this truncated understanding of what, of what, um, of what the extractive process is and what it occludes from view, as you very nicely put it, is like conflicts over extraction, over the fact of extraction, um, at the fact of extraction, or over whether or not to, to have in place this or that extractive sector. And it turns out that if you look at the history of extraction, and it's not just, is not limited to, to oil at all, but the, the one are quite interesting. But if you look at the history of, of, of mining, um, you know, of, of even older extractive sectors, these are debates that state actors have had among themselves, sometimes with the towards, and this is, you know, I'm taking some of this from, from, from the literature in the Middle East and North African region, but sort of like, should we conserve these resources um, for the future? It's not like anti-extractive in the same way that the movements I discussed are, but it is like 
conservative about resource use. So all sorts of state actors have debated that. Um, they've debated over using the resources domestically versus internationally. They've debated whether this or that project makes sense, right? So there are all these interesting debates, even if we just stick with the state. But then if we open things up and we go to both private firms and also go to non-state social movement actors, things get even more complex. And there's all sorts of disputes and conflicts that are very vibrant that have to do with the question of extraction. And then get into this um, whole set of possibilities, which is basically not only like unexplained, but almost impossible in the resource curse framework, wherein non-state actors, primarily social movements, but even some state actors, as in my case, um, in, in Ecuador, are like, be, become critical of extraction or even anti-extraction. And they don't want to extract because like the sort of understanding of the resource curse literature is that everyone, um, no matter who you are, wants extraction to happen because everyone to some degree gets a slice of the pie of the extractive rents. Um, and like everyone is sort of like bound to this model, um, whether they kind of like it or not almost, but it just is what it is. Um, whereas in, 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 in Ecuador, and, and there are other cases of this in the world, um, uh, you actually have movements um, and even some state actors that become opposed to extraction. And so how do we explain this outcome? So, so they're just sort of, you know, just sticking on the positivist sort of framework, like they're just unexplained phenomena that this, that this model can't really account for. Um, but, you know, in addition to the unexplained phenomena, there's a couple of other issues I have with it, which um, um, there's a phrase that I quote, um, and now I'm, of course, blanking on who the scholar is, but it's in the book, and I quote it, and it's like called fe commodity fetishism. Um, and it's a, it's a phrase that says, like, you know, why should we think that a certain commodity, like m monotonically or unilaterally or whatever, homogeneously determines political outcomes? Like, right. that doesn't really make any sense yeah um, well in this case the commodity doesn't extract itself you know it doesn't transport itself to market these are all social and political processes that need to be uh be put in place in order for this to happen involve forms of imperial domination and other tactics right so it's even weird to to, to label some states as like victims or 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 you know even uh you know sort of like patients there's almost this like medically pathological like you just are like with this disease of, of rentierism. And it, even the original work on the rentier state talks about things like the rentier mentality and like the rentier outlook. It like becomes like part of people's DNA. It's like very odd. But anyway, um, uh, so, so, you know, th there's a sort of causal problem there where everything is like homogeneously determined by this one set of factors and a set of factors that supposedly only afflicts the states where the extraction takes place. And that just is not, just cannot be sustained empirically in any way. But then the other thing is like, what are the outcomes? So um, that's like the causal side of the story that I just sort of unpacked a bit. Then there's the outcome side of the story. And the two main outcomes of the resource curse are political and economic. The political one is supposed to be authoritarianism or like bad democracies, like sort of pacted democracies, limited democracies, hybrid authoritarian regimes, whatever it is. So there's like a regime outcome, right? That's bad. Um, and then there's an economic outcome that's bad. That's usually diagnosed as Dutch disease. Um, um, and we don't need to get into the economic mechanisms of Dutch disease. Suffice to say that the idea is that it results in underinvestment in non-extractive sectors or just in other sectors of the economy so that the extractive sector dominates the economy in ways that um, uh, sort of distort um, the possibility of other types of economic activity, right? So these are the two outcomes, authoritarianism or, or bad democracies and um, underdevelop economic underdevelopment.
I, I don't dispute that that there are historical connections between like authoritarian regimes and like the, their their access to oil rents, let's say, or between um, the dynamics of extractive sectors and the way they affect other sectors in the economy. Um, but I don't think it's it's so simple to say that unilaterally oil or diamonds or mining like leads to both authoritarianism and and um, and economic underdevelopment in, in all cases. First of all, there's just too many exceptions for this to make any sense. Like, um, and it, it again gets us back to the question of what is what states are considered frontier states and what states are conveniently left out of that category, right? Of course, we have Norway, which is an oil state. Um, we have the U.S. and Canada, which have enormous mineral abundance, and 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 regions or states or provinces, you know, whatever of of those of those um, countries have have been like. Uh, really deep in the extractive economy and have relied almost entirely for revenues on on those. Then we have countries like Chile, which I think of as a very much an insufficient democracy, but it's never included in this literature as like, oh, Chile's mineral wealth has made it has made it like not democratic enough, right? And that wouldn't even be a sufficient explanation for why Chile has, in my view, an uh, insufficiently democratic regime, right? And so it just there's too many exceptions um, or or countries that are conveniently left out in one one way or another. Um, but then there's one other thing I want to I want to bring up. Um, 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 oh, actually, let me just finish one thing on that thought, which is that part of the reason that these there are countries that don't align with the expectations of Dutch disease or or, or authoritarianism is because we obviously need to put them both in the global context of what position in the world economy do these countries occupy, um, what powers um, do they have to sort of um, uh, influence their their own economies? Are they subject to other companies or countries, or are they more in sovereign control of their resources? Um, and then, what pre-existing state capacity or other economic sectors did did they have? Right, and this obviously accounts for a big variation in outcomes um, and no one-to-one relationship between economic underdevelopment or authoritarianism and um, and uh, resource abundance or dependency. Right. So there's that. And then the last thing I want to say, and this is going to circle back to several of our recent of our prior sort of conversations is that, you know, when we say that resource extraction creates um, authoritarianism, we really rely often on a very minimal and I think insufficiently rich understanding of what democracy is. Right. We just say, like, do we do we code the state in a binary dichotomous kind of variable way, democratic or authoritarian? And we know from your work and from my work that on both of those sides, like that's not a very useful way to categorize regime type. It, it puts too many unlike things together and makes it seem that everything that ends up in the democracy category is like a good regime and 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 opposite for the authoritarian one, right? And that's just way too simplistic. But, but in addition, like, you know, in, in Ecuador, we had an expansion of extractive activity, not just of the pre-existing extractive sector, which was oil, um, but also a new extractive sector, which was mining. All of this happened, and I did not mention this earlier, but during a commodity boom of historically high prices, right? So this is the perfect conditions for like democracy to be undermined because we have lots of resources coming into the state um, and the state can use those resources to co-opt or repress civil society. And I don't want to say that none of that happened. There was some co-optation and there's certainly some repression, but there was also a whole set of other things that happened, like movements arose and um, and contested democracy by um, sort of redeploying participatory institutions that the state had set up to like to their own ends, which included anti-extractive goals, right? And so like it's just actually much more complicated than saying like 
oil or mining allowed the state to undermine democracy. What instead happened is a set of debates that were very generative opened up um, with resource extraction being like the sort of key object uh, in dispute, um, but in which different actors on different sides of those debates made various appeals to democratic legitimacy, made use of various democratic institutions to further their ends. Asymmetrically, I don't want to equate the movement in states because the state had more power in that context, but but the state's power was also severely limited by movements agile redeployment of democracy. Um, and so it's, it would be extremely simplistic to the point of like just a ridiculous um, uh, reading of the case to say uh, Ecuador became like more authoritarian because of the commodity boom. It's just not what happened, right? And it's much more interesting to actually look at what happened rather than stick with theories that predict sort of monocausal outcomes. Right. And I think that also uh, in those resource curse models, the uh, image or counterfactual of what would happen without the resources is based on um, bogus Whig history of European development uh, that's grounded in, you know, high, you know, North and Wine Gas, highly questionable reading of the Glorious Revolution and subsequent work on um bargaining over over uh fiscal resources that is still a point of contention among your historians of europe and and economic historians um uh where um oh you know the state wants to go the monarch wants to go to war but he has to bargain with elites and that's how you get representation and you know question mark question mark question mark mass democracy you know um and uh resources supposedly circumvent this process by allowing leaders to circumvent that bargaining over fiscal resources, uh, as I read the literature. And that's not even an accurate image of how political development supposedly happened in quote-unquote non-resource-cursed places to the extent that you can speak of non-resource countries, as you put it, as you uh, pointed out. But um I, I think on both sides of the resource curse theory, there are big problems. Um, uh, couldn't agree more. I, I think it always, you know, it sort of like goes back to modernization theory and these stylized depictions of of, of um, trajectories of modernization and how things supposedly happened in the West, you know, or, you know, in the global North or whatever, in some way, you know, totally divorced from like, capitalism, social conflict, class power, you know, different elites, um, you know, in conflict with one another in some cases, right? And, and just really misrepresents that history in order to somehow make the global South post-colonial settings look like problematic deviations from a history that never happened, right? And not only that, those two histories are bound together because we're all on the same planet and we're all in the same system and politically and economically, you know, on a planetary scale. And so it, it, it just, you know, there's so many levels to it, but I think you put that very well. I, I think we need to have a turn for a decolonized critical comparative politics uh, that would not only um, incorporate these world systemic effects and thinking about the global South, but also just reevaluate European politics. And, and it would make us, it would open up new questions about European politics and about American politics uh, to consider, you know, how, imperialism affected the course of democratization, for example. Uh, histories of this historical turn in democratization studies never mentions the fact that the expansion of the franchise took place at the same time as the new imperialism, uh, 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 which 
you know, surely there must be some connection between these surely. two well, very Cecil, momentous political developments. Cecil Rhodes um, certainly thought there was. I mean, right. imperialists in the moment were like, great, can we conquer territories? Is really going to diffuse this like class, politically mediated class conflict that's unfolding right, exactly. the Exactly. Yeah, actors say social it imperialism. Yeah, right. we just need to read the archives um, and, right. and do that more. And I, I really couldn't put it better than you did. I, the the decolonized mm-hmm. or comparative history that brings these different sites of an unfolding of, of global processes into co- the conversation to, with each other that they already are, um, you know, sort of mm-hmm. just makes clear that, that, that they're connected to one another is, is where we need to go as comparative politics. And though I think that the disciplinary um, trends of sort of quant- quant- quantitative studies and, and, and formal models are real, I also think that there are people, you know, you're in graduate school, I'm a sort of still junior on the cusp of not being a junior scholar anymore, hopefully we'll see how the tenure case goes. But, <laughs> right. you, know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, we're part of a, a group of people that I think is asking these questions, is posing mm-hmm. uh, methodological and substantive challenges. And, and I just, you know, I want to see more of it and I want to see us better networked with one another. And I, I think that there's just a lot of fascinating stuff that's actually happening um, in that direction. Okay. On that note, uh, thank you very much for joining me, Thea. Um, Thea's book, uh, Resource Radicals, uh, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador is out now from Duke University Press. Have a nice day.